Welcome to the Complicated Heart Podcast. I'm your host, Sarah May, and this is a show all about exploring messy heart topics and the strategies we can use to seek healing in the pain and restoration in the wounds. Today, I have on the podcast... My doctorish lady, and I call her doctorish lady because I always forget what she is. Maybe it's physician's assistant. She'll tell you in a second. But I have Ruth Karthik with me, and we are going to be talking about anxiety and depression and medication and a few other things. And by the way, Ruth is the one who treats me for my anxiety and depression. So how I want to kick this off, friends, is I'm going to have Ruth actually tell you a little bit who she is uh, so that she can get the title and description correct. But first of all, Ruth, hi, welcome to the show. Hello, hello. Thank you so much, Sarah. This is so exciting to be here with you. I'm so glad you said yes. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) So Ruth, go ahead and tell the listeners what your actual title is, what you do, and how you got started. Sure. So yeah, I'm Ruth Karthak. Um, that's my married name. I still practice under my, ma- my maiden name, which is Ruth Mershon. Um, I am a physician assistant. Good job. You got that right. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so I, um, yeah, I have my master's in physician assistant um, studies as well as a master of public health. And I got started as a medical professional, actually, from my desire to be a mom. I sat down with the list of majors at the college I wanted to go to, and I said, do I want to be a teacher or a nurse? Because those are the best mom professions in my small little high school head. Mm -hmm. And I decided I didn't want to teach other people's kids, so I would be in the medical field. And I ended up as a PA um, because I wanted to have a little bit more direct contact with patients and be able to counsel them better. So that's how I ended up there and eventually planned to use that on the mission field, which is why I didn't do a full... MD doctor. People often ask me why not, Um, but I wanted to be able to finish quicker and pay off my debt sooner and get to the mission field. So yeah, that's how I got started. So what do people call, like, it's so much easier to say my doctor, Ruth, like it's hard to be like my physician's assistant, Ruth, like what do people say? (laughs) Yes, right. Um, usually for patients who are either my age or older, I just have them call me Ruth. Okay. Um, especially because I often develop friendships with my patients. So it's just a lot easier to take any titles off. Yeah. Um, usually like the little kids will call me like Miss Ruth or something like that. But I, yeah, I'm not a doctor, so people can't call me doctor. I feel like I still wouldn't say that because when I'm like, what guys, I'm interviewing my doctor. <laughs> I'm interviewing my physician's assistant. I know. Do you know what I mean? Right. I know. Yeah. Yeah. It is kind of confusing and they've actually lobbied for getting a title for us, but not yet. And so I'm just plain Ruth. I'm I'm okay with that. Okay. Just plain Ruth. Okay. Well, since we're talking about depression and anxiety today, I figured why don't we start with some definitions? And the reason I want to do some definitions, and I realize there's probably like a scale of these things, but I had no idea sort of how anxiety and depression were linked. And so I always assumed that I was depressed and I was, but I had no idea that there was like anxiety under that as well. So could you help us to understand a little bit of the differences between anxiety and depression and then how the two are linked? Yeah, sure. So depression is kind of, 
you feel depressed. So, you know, that's kind of a classic definition, but what does that exactly mean? Um, there's a lot of symptoms of depression, often feeling down, not having any motivation, feeling really tired, not eating well, um, not finding pleasure in things that you have had pleasure before, um, an overwhelming, crushing feeling of sadness. And usually that goes on for a longer period of time um, and often doesn't have any clear roots. Like it doesn't have something that's like, oh, this is where that's coming from. So you have to kind of spend more time figuring that out. Um, anxiety is more so uh, being worried all of the time, um, having this feeling that something bad is going to happen, um, just kind of like always on guard. And usually that comes with physical symptoms as well, more so like a racing heart or just kind of feeling really jittery and uptight, muscle tightness, that kind of a thing. Um, and they can be very linked and often are. Um, in fact, we do at our practice, we have a mood questionnaire that we have our patients fill out. Um, and rarely do I see just one or the other. Usually, um, it's a kind of a combination of both. And <laughs> I will classically ask my patients, do you feel like you're anxious because you're depressed or depressed because you're anxious? So usually I've found that one comes first and one is like the, the underlying trigger kind of thing. And then the other comes on top as kind of like a secondary layer. So often if someone is overwhelmingly anxious for a longer period of time, that just tends to get them discouraged and depressed because they feel like there's no way out of how they feel. And then vice versa, if they're depressed first, then they start to get anxious. Like, why can't I get myself out of this? Why can't I like find an answer to this? Um, they almost always go together. There's there's very few times that I see that nobody, like they only have one or the other. That's very rare for me to see. Yeah, it's interesting because when I first went into your practice, I saw Jonathan, not you. Okay, yeah. And I took the mood questionnaire and I was so depressed, like really, really mm -hmm. bad, dark place. And yeah. after filling out that, he looked at me and he said, your main uh, issue you're struggling with is actually anxiety. And I was like, mm -hmm. no, I'm not an anxious person. Like I'm super laid back. <laughs> I'm not anxious. And he's like, Sarah, uh -huh. you wrote like a five on all of the ones for anxiety or whatever it was, but <laughs> yeah, I didn't know right, right, for anxiety. Yeah. It's like, doesn't want to go anywhere. Doesn't want to do anything. Like uh -huh. I can't remember what it was now. I wish I had the mood thing in front of me, but I was so surprised and I was like, that doesn't make any sense to me. And he said, no, you've been so anxious and it has led to you being depressed. And that was fascinating. And so he was like, I don't want to put you on an antidepressant. I want to put you on an anti-anxiety medication because I think that is actually going to help the depression. Uh -huh. And yes. And then after that initial one, I started to meet with you. Um, and so, okay. So that makes a lot of sense. And so getting down to sort of the brass tacks, let's say somebody is, is really struggling with, they're not sure if it's anxiety or depression or whatever, but they're in sort of a dark place or they're tiptoeing into it, or sometimes it's in and out or whatever. How do you know, like at what point does somebody, do you recommend that somebody starts to consider taking medication? Because I know sort of probably the first answer is, well, maybe talk to somebody, see a counselor or a therapist. I don't, I don't know. But what, what are some signs or symptoms that someone's struggling? Would you say, let's try some medication? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, I usually kind of 
uh, I encourage people to see like my patients to kind of consider how much is ruling their life and how much of it it's controlling their life and controlling their decisions. Um, and especially if a patient has already been in counseling and therapy and it's still overwhelming, um, that would be a time to consider medication because it, if it's so controlling that you can't counsel your way out of it, you can't think your way out of it, you can't figure out what is going on and why this is here and you can't have discernment kind of to be able to understand what is going on, that would be a time to kind of consider medication because it's sometimes it's so overwhelming and it's caused so much physical effect on your body that you you can't get out of it without um, kind of chemical stabilization. And that usually comes by, you, know, you can usually tell that by how much it's affecting your normal daily life and how overwhelming it is. Yeah. So will you share your thoughts on, because we hear this from the Christian community that if you just, you know, rely on Jesus and trust him, uh, Ruth is a Christian, by the way, um, you know, then you should be okay. Or like, this is, you know, a spiritual attack, which maybe that's true too, but really you shouldn't need medication. And, uh, if you're choosing that, then really you're, you're not trusting God. You've not, you know, done your research that it's, you know, whatever, there's a million things, I guess people could say, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah. That line of thinking um, makes me sad because it's only one little piece of the picture and it is a good piece of the picture. So I want to just kind of, you know, affirm that as that is part of it, but it's not the whole picture. So usually when I sit down with my patients at the beginning, especially if they're struggling with that very question, I'll just kind of explain how depression and anxiety comes from can come from four different places. It can be an emotional trigger which is usually some kind of life event, um, like say your grandmother dies or your child is really sick or there's something emotional that happens or you're in a car accident and that makes you super anxious. Um, Lots of different life triggers that cause an emotional reaction inside of you that can just kind of end up being a pattern. Um, It can come from mental causes. So that can be just repetitive thought patterns. It can come from things you were trained to think when you were a child. It can come from um, just like mental bondage almost, if you want to think of it that way. Um, It can be physical, which means that it can be a genetic issue. It can be something passed down from your parents. Um, And oftentimes in that case, we'll see a strong family history of anxiety or depression. Um, But even more so with the physical, if you have a lot of life stress, even if it be good stress, but any kind of stressor on your life can cause chemical imbalances in your brain that are, they're called neurotransmitters. And those things are, they're chemicals in your brain that are supposed to keep you calm, are supposed to keep you happy and supposed to keep you thinking well. And those can go out of balance if you've got lots of stressors. And then the fourth one is spiritual. Sometimes it is a spiritual battle. Sometimes it is a lack of faith. Sometimes it is a spiritual, um, just a center of not trusting the Lord or not surrendering to him in a certain way, or even spiritual warfare, like a demonic attack or um, just a spiritual struggle over your life. 
more commonly, I see it as a combination of all four of those things. And oftentimes you can kind of figure out what the root of it is, but then that causes effects and ripple effects in all four of those areas. So it, the spiritual is definitely a part of it. And I firmly and wholeheartedly believe that faith in the Lord and having a spiritual root will be helpful in treating anxiety and depression. And you can't do it without the Lord, but it, you have to address all four arenas and the, the medication aspect of it helps to stabilize those neurotransmitters in your brain so that you can have better clarity on where it's coming from and what needs to happen in order for the Lord to bring healing. Hey friends, thanks so much for listening. We're going to take a quick break and then we'll be right back to the interview. How do you forgive when the wound is still open? How do you forgive someone who wounded you so deeply, who carelessly brushed aside your pain, who caused such destruction? And even more specifically, how do you forgive them when your wounds are still open, when they show no remorse, when you are so dang tangled up with them, you're not sure how on earth to get untangled? In my new book, The Complicated Heart, Loving Even When It Hurts, I share the story of how I learned to love and forgive my alcoholic mother and how I learned to wrestle out the answers to those questions. If you are in a difficult or tangled up relationship, The Complicated Heart offers hope in the midst of the pain and questions. It reads like a fiction, but you'll find at the end of it that you not only know you can face the pain, but you'll have tangible takeaways you can implement immediately. Head to thecomplicatedheart.com to learn more or head to wherever books are sold to get your copy today. That is so good. And I want to touch a little bit more on that in just a couple of minutes here. But I love that you are talking about how the four different places sort of can all interchange with each other. Because if you go to, you know, I'm thinking like if someone goes to a secular doctor or you go to somebody who's not spending the time to actually talk with you and sort of understand your circumstances or where these things are coming from, it'd be easy to slap medication on somebody or it would be easy to say, no, you just need Jesus. Like one or the other, actually. Um, As opposed to, yeah, actually, getting to know your patient and listening. I mean, you're not a therapist, <laughs> but <laughs> but you're a good physician's assistant <laughs> because yeah, when I come in to talk to you, it's not just a quick, like what's going on. Like you want to know what's happening in my life. Like you care enough. And I think that's really important on the medical side that people who are caring for patients are caring for the whole person and not just wanting to slap a band-aid or a fixer on it, but really wanting to understand what's going on. And so that's, yeah, that's so important to understand those four places. It needs to be holistic. Yes. You're a a mind, you're a heart, you're a soul. Yes. Yes. It has to be all of those things. And if you just address one area of that, then you're going to miss out on the rest of the picture and it's going to take a whole lot longer to get better. That's so good. That's so good. Okay. So, um, you know that I have struggled with a lot of fear about becoming 
like, I don't want to need to take medication. Like I always feel like I want to wean myself off because I don't want to need it, you know? Um, and I, and I have tried to wean myself off before. And most recently I had tried to wean myself off and had stopped taking it while I was processing through some drama. I was in counseling and my Mm -hmm. husband was like, what are you doing? Like, you're just, it's getting worse. And I was like, no, I need to know like, like my own self, like I need to know what my brain is saying and I don't want anything to cover that up. And you said that it would be better to stay on the medication during the counseling process. And I remember being like, like, but why that I don't really know what's, you know, what's true. And can you explain why you told me and why you think in general, if you're dealing with trauma and you're somebody prone to depression or anxiety, why would it be better to stay on the medication while you're working through it? Yeah, sure. Um, I think that you actually touched on a common misperception of medication, which is that it masks something or covers up something. I just wanted to hit on that first, because from my perspective as a clinician, that's not really true. And unfortunately, people get the impression of that because sometimes if you are on a dose that's too high, you can feel very numb emotionally because Mm. it just kind of levels you out so much that you don't feel emotions like you did before. And that is where that kind of common misperception comes from of what the medication is actually doing. Um, The most common medication that we use for anxiety and depression are called SSRIs, which is short for Selective Serotonin Reuptake Inhibitors. And the way I explain it to my patients is that serotonin is one of those neurotransmitters that I referenced before. And it's God designed that in your brain to kind of float around in your brain and keep your emotions stable and give you the ability to regulate your own emotional state, kind of. And what happens with any kind of stress is that your body kind of vacuums that serotonin out of your brain because it's freaking out going, oh no, we're under stress. We need to keep this for later. We need to stockpile it, kind of like a squirrel in the fall collecting their acorns. But then if you forget where your acorns are, then you don't know how to manage those emotions. So essentially what those medications are designed to do is they're designed to keep the serotonin levels in your brain where they should be and kind of, you know, keep those levels good and slow down that vacuum cleaner so that you have that serotonin in your brain to be able to handle whatever stress you're under. And the the principle of when you're in counseling for trauma, that brings up a lot of memories, that can bring up a lot of hurt and pain, and it can be really difficult to confront those things and work through those things. So that can be very stressful, usually is. And so if you are off of the medication while you're doing trauma counseling, then your body's vacuum cleaner is going haywire, sucking out all of that serotonin so that you can't regulate your emotions while you're going through that counseling. And I try really hard to keep my patients at at a place where they're stable, but not numb. And that can be kind of a tricksy thing because everybody's different. Everybody's serotonin vacuum is different. And so I have to be very careful in how I 
I prescribe the dosage or the medication so that that way it's stable, but not numb. Um, and the other, the other word picture that I use for medication and therapy is um, if you break your leg, for instance, um, you're not going to want to walk on that leg. Um, it's going to be very painful. And sometimes you can't even walk on it, just you physically can't. So that's why you need a crutch to be able to still walk. Um, and then as that bone heals, you're going to want to go to physical therapy to strengthen the muscles, to relearn how to walk on that injured leg. And you're probably going to need your crutches for a while while you're going through the physical therapy until finally, once your leg is strong enough that you can walk and then maybe hopefully somebody run on it, then you won't need those crutches anymore. So to my mind, especially if there's some kind of trauma, um, the, the medication is like the crutch in that example. Um, and obviously you need to have some kind of physical therapy. Otherwise you're going to relearn how to walk on that leg incorrectly. Um, but the crutch is super valuable to keep weight off of that injured leg while you're working through things. Do you think some people need the crutch forever? Or do you think everybody at some point could wean off the medication? Yeah, that is a very difficult question because it's very individualized based on the person. So um, when I was talking earlier about the physical component of anxiety and depression, I referenced um, the genetic component to it. And I've found that some of my patients just will need to be on some type of medication for the rest of their life because of genetic predisposition. I also have other patients who they'll have seasons of their life that they just they need to be back on meds for a while. And that might be for three, four, five years until they're finally back to a place where they feel like they can try weaning off again. And they just understand that their body is chemically predisposed to have a vacuum cleaner that's a little out of whack. And so those kind of people may need to be on medication for a longer period of time because of the way that their body is built. And to me, I don't like that but it's just, to me, a sign that we live in a broken, fallen world. And a lot of us have things about our body that just don't function correctly. And that's one of them. And oftentimes I'll use the example of bipolar disease. That's a little bit different than what we're talking about right now. But bipolar is a genetic kind of disease that is just a chemical imbalance in the brain that doesn't have, that we know of, any cure. So that usually gets passed along. There's usually a very strong family history of bipolar disease. And someone who has bipolar has to come to the realization at some point that their body has that, that there's something chemically that's always off and that they will need the medication to correct that so that they can live a normal, healthy life for the rest of their life. Anxiety and depression is very different, and oftentimes it just depends on where in those four things it's coming from and whether there is some kind of a genetic uh, issue, I guess, like predisposition to need medication. Yeah, that's really good. And, uh, you know, I, I remember having the thoughts like, why can't I just be normal? You know, like, why do mm -hmm. I have to struggle with this? And it feels like there's a lot of shame, 
you know, sure. surrounding uh, taking medication, you know, cause like, why can't I just be like my husband who gets up and is normal and blah, blah, blah. And one of the things yeah. that I've been learning is there's nothing wrong with you if you have to be on medication that's exceptional right. meaning in a fallen world we all have something like it right. doesn't mean that you are abnormal or shameful or bad or um whatever any any more than anybody else and that has been a huge switch in my brain to remember that we all deal with something <laughs> we all have something Absolutely. Every one of us has brokenness, yeah. no matter who we are. So at what point do you consider it safe to wean yourself off medication? Like how should somebody go about that? If, you know, what point do you think, you know what, maybe you could try weaning yourself off medication. What, what would you encourage or what would you say to that? Um, I think it depends on the patient's mindset. Oftentimes, um, if a patient has been really diligent about going to therapy and just delving into like, where did this come from? What are the causes for me? And if they're pursuing healing from the Lord and just saying, okay, Lord, what is it about my heart and mind? Have I, you know, had any areas where I'm not submitting to you? Have I had any areas that I need your healing in? Um, are there other things about my life that I'm, I'm not trusting you or I'm not believing truth and, just pursuing that from both a spiritual perspective and a counseling perspective, a lot of times patients can find actual real healing in the areas that really need it. Um, and the medication has done its job in that case of keeping a patient stable and able to work through those emotions. And so when they get to the point that they're like, oh my goodness, I was just found so much freedom and I feel so much healthier and I don't feel anxious and depressed anymore and I'm not having panic attacks anymore. And they do that little mood questionnaire that I referred to and most of the answers are zeros. And I say, you know what, you want to try cutting back a little bit and see how you do. And I do it really gradually. Um, and I don't ever, ever, please don't anyone ever just stop it altogether at one time that can make you feel really weird. Um, so I just kind of work them back gradually. And oftentimes once the underlying issue has been addressed, then the medication is no longer needed because your vacuum cleaner is back to working the way that God designed and intended it to work. Um, and you don't need to have the medication anymore. So it's kind of a situational thing again, but it's definitely something you should do with your practitioner and not on your own um, and do it gradually and do it in conjunction with, you know, in the broken leg example, just gradually bearing more weight, seeing how you're doing, how are you in your life situation, how is your stress level, and then just kind of like gradually weaning yourself off. So let me ask you this. Is it possible for your serotonin levels to self-regulate if there's a genetic component? Hmm, that's a great question. So I'm going to give a conditional yes. <laughs> you can oftentimes make adjustments in your lifestyle and make um, changes in the way that you make decisions and how you limit stressors and how you process stress um, that can kind of compensate for a genetic serotonin imbalance. Um, so to the point where you can often live a very normal life, even if there is a genetic component to it, um, not everybody can, but 
I have patients, and again, that goes back to the patients who have to be on it for a few years at a time and then they can go off. Like they are more familiar and in tune with their own emotions so that they can kind of tell, eh, I'm getting to the point where I need a little bit of extra help. But the other times they have a very healthy mindset and viewpoint of their own mental health and how to manage emotions well and things like that, that they're able to function very normally as normal people with normal emotional health. Um, but they might just be a little bit more aware that they would need medication at some point. Um, not everybody is like that. So it's, it's again, very individual. It's not a blanket yes or no answer, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, that makes sense. So somebody had asked me to ask you what your thoughts were on TMS therapy for depression and anxiety. And we talked about it and, and we had to sort of look that up and you realized it was like ECT and people listening are like, what the heck are you talking about? So could you tell us what TMS and ECT therapy are and if they're effective for depression and anxiety and your thoughts on that? Right. Yeah, sure. Um, so TMS is, um, stands for transcranial magnetic stimulation and um, I wasn't as familiar with that term, like you said, so I looked that up and it's very similar to um, what we know as ECT, which is electroconvulsive therapy. And I'm much more um, familiar with that. So I, it, to me, from just my brief um, research on it, TMS is like a, um, a milder form of ECT. ECT is actually done under general anesthesia and it's an induced seizure to try to rewire some of the brain's connections in order to be able to process life in a healthy manner. It's a very extreme form of therapy, ECT is. Um, I've only ever had one patient who has recommended for it, and that was done by a psychiatrist, um, not by myself. Um, and so TMS sounds to me like it's just a, a milder version of that. Um, I would say from my limited knowledge of both, it needs to be done under very careful professional guidance, someone who is very familiar with the therapy. Um, ECT, I know, has been proven to work, um, but it's only done in very extreme circumstances, shall we say, where a patient is just really depressed, um, recurrently suicidal, that kind of idea. So it's not something that is recommended for everyone. By far, for sure. Um, and I would say that TMS would probably fall into that category. And that would be more so of if medication, traditional therapy, even like um, different behavioral therapy, you know, types of therapy aren't working, then you would go to that kind of modality. And I, again, I would not do it unless it's under the supervision of a practitioner who knows exactly what they're doing and is very versed in the the dangers of it, because I know with ECT, that can be a, a dangerous, there are risks to it. It's not something that is lightly taken up. Um, and it's kind of, if everything else is not working kind of idea. So for both, I would say, just make sure that you're with a practitioner who knows what they're doing um, and is doing it um, kind of more as a, a last resort, not so much as let's go do this because it's a good idea. Yeah. Um, thank you for answering that. Okay, so I want to talk a little bit about um, fear and sadness and weakness. <laughs> um, 
when I, I, I remember when I was talking to you about my fear of sliding back into depression, like I was so scared that I was, I came to see you and I was like, I'm so afraid I'm sliding back. I'm so afraid. And that fear was like overwhelming to me that I might be sliding back into it, even on the medication. And you said something that really helped me to think differently. You encouraged me that when we're sad, it doesn't always mean I'm sliding back into depression. And so, and then you brought up sort of talking about weakness and stress, which we already touched, you know, on stress, but would you just talk to me about that whole thing? Sort of like this idea of the fear of falling into depression, how set, how it doesn't just cause you're sad does not mean you're depressed. And then what that has to do with weakness. Sadness in and of, in and of itself is not a bad emotion. Um, and I think it sometimes gets a bad rap because nobody wants to be an Eeyore who's always down and in the dumps. Um, but sadness is often very appropriate. So I'll start with that. You know, if your grandmother dies or, or if your child is sick, being sad about that situation is a normal human emotion. It's a normal response. Um, and I think that God has made us emotional beings and God gets sad. Jesus wept when his best friend died, even though he knew he was going to bring him back to life. I mean, sadness and crying and all of those things are very normal emotions. And sometimes it's not something we should run away from. And it's something that we should recognize is there. And I often will encourage my patients to be a little bit objective about their emotions and to just say, okay, I'm feeling sad right now. Why do I feel sad? And the biggest struggle is when you can't figure out why. And I think that's where your fear comes from because depression can often be a mysterious I feel down all the time and I don't know why. And it's the not knowing why that can cause some of that fear because there's a mystery to it. There's a, I feel like I'm not in control feeling. Um, So oftentimes I'll just have my patients and I do this for myself. This is how I know how to recommend this is just take a minute and just step back and say, okay, what's going on in my life right now? Why do I feel this way? Why do I feel overwhelmed? Why do I feel anxious? Why do I feel sad? Sometimes why do I feel angry and upset? Like this doesn't make any sense. Um, And obviously if you're a woman and you're PMSing, that's a whole different issue. (laughs) Um, But on a normal basis, if that's something that you're experiencing, just kind of take a minute to step back and say, okay, why? And sometimes it's, it's a cumulative effect of all of the stress that's going on in our lives because stress tends to, if you're under a lot of it, and again, it can be good stress. It can be bad stress. Um, it can tend to kind of imbalance those chemicals a little bit and it can result in you feeling sad. And I kind of use it as a, as a thermometer, almost uh, an indicator for yourself that something's not quite right. Something is a little out of balance. Um, and especially if it's not a specific trigger of, you know, someone just died and I'm feeling sad about that, but it's just a general, I don't know where this is coming from feeling. It can be an indicator for yourself that you just need to take a step back and figure out why that's there. Um, and oftentimes I I've seen like newly married women come in and just be like, I just don't, I don't understand. Like I just got married. I got a new job. I moved. I got this new house. My husband's wonderful, but I just feel sad and I don't know why. 
And sometimes it's just because there's so much stress and all of what I just listed in that kind of a situation, those are all really good things, but they're all changed. They're all new things. And it's just, it's a stressor on your body that can end up with you feeling a little overwhelmed. And so I encourage my patients to use those feelings, not as controlling you, not as a thermostat that's dictating your life and telling you you're going back to depression or anxiety, but just as an indicator, almost like a check engine light of like, okay, hold on a minute. I'm starting to feel a little bit off. Where is that coming from? And sometimes it's just an indicator that you need to kind of take a step back and rest. <laughs> we, especially as Americans, we tend to do way too much. And that just ends up with high stress levels all of the time. And we were designed by God to rest. That's what Sabbath is. That's why it's there. He created the Sabbath for man, he says. And um, God rested as an example for us. And um, it's just amazing to me what rest can do in restoring your spirit and kind of rebalancing those emotions to the place where God wants them to be. Um, and I know that you and I had had the conversation about um, just kind of a weakness limitation kind of idea. And I had a, a wonderful missionary friend of mine. She's a missionary in Tanzania. Um, we were sitting on her front porch talking one time when I was over there and she, she said this really profound thing to me that God, we need to know our limitations because they are God's protection against burnout. Hmm. Say it again. Say it again. We need to know our limitations because they are given by God as protection against burnout. And what I think that means is that we're not God. We're not meant or built to do everything. We're not meant to just be go, go, go all of the time. God has given us and allowed us to have limitations, one, so that we remember that we're not God and we can't do everything because that's only for God and that's only Him that can do everything. But then, two, for us to just remember how dependent we are on Him. And that's part of why Sabbath and rest is so, so important because we need to just take a step back and just in humility say, Lord, I can't do all of this. I can't say yes to everything. I can't be Superwoman, Superman, and just be everybody's hero. That's not what you've designed me for. That's not what you've created me for. And where am I doing too much? Where am I depending on myself too much? And how can I just take, take a step back and just say, Lord, you are Lord. You are the one who can do everything, not me. I am not a savior. I'm not a rescuer. I am just a tool in your hand and I need to be connected with you and I need to be dependent on you. And a lot of times we just kind of forget that. We just go do our own lives. And especially in America, you can kind of just live your life without God and and not not remember that. <laughs> and so I think that God allows us limitations um, and has built them into our lives so that we remember that. And sometimes the indicator that we have of that is our emotions. Yeah, that's so good. I love how you asked the question, where am I depending on myself too much? That's mm-hmm. such an American thing. Um, oh, yeah, to do. absolutely. So I think that's a great question. And also, 
to the whole thing on limitations and all of that, like, and transitions and and even good stress, like you were saying, being a newlywed and getting a new house. And like, these are all really positive things, but they're still stressors. And I think we don't give ourselves much grace to feel differently when there's change or other stress. I, when I transitioned from homeschooling my kids to putting them in public school, I was really depressed for weeks and crying every day and just beating myself up for it. And a friend of mine, and partly God was trying to reveal some things underneath, you know, that my kids had been band-aiding by being with me. But also a friend of mine was like, you know, that's a big change. Like you've been with your kids every day for 11 years. Like, don't Mm -hmm. you think maybe to give yourself some grace that this is a big transition? And it never even occurred to me that there might be grieving or sadness. Isn't that crazy? Because I just think, well, no, it's just, I'm putting them in school. Like, it's not a big deal. In fact, Hey, I've got the whole day to myself now. Like, and not allowing, um, such a big change to cause grief or sadness. So I think that's important learning how to give grace to ourselves. So let me ask you this real practical question. How do you rest when you're real busy? Like, how do you rest if you have little kids running around and you're exhausted? Or how do you rest when you're working so hard to provide for your family and you feel like you can't even take a Sunday off, let alone, you know, an evening or whatever? What what do you say to that? Does that go back to the question, where am I depending on myself too much? Or is it just a real practical life season? Like, talk to us about how the heck do you rest when you're so busy? Um, yeah, that's a big question. It is a big Um, question. I can can tell you from personal experience, it's a real difficult one too. Um, Because I remember when I was in grad school and, you know, sleeping three hours a night, super stressed, had all this pressure to do well, whatever. I had an MD friend of mine who is, you know, my parents' age, who had a lot of experience and was older than me, um, say to me, you know, you really ought to try to sleep eight hours a night and take every Sunday off and not do any schoolwork or classwork. Um, Cause that's why I did med school and it was just absolutely amazing. And I remember looking at him and just laughing like, yeah, right. <laughs> that's not going to happen. <laughs> um, but the principle of that was that if you're sleeping and if you are effectively Sabbathing, then the rest of the time when you're working, you will be more effective, more efficient, and actually be able to get more work done. It's also kind of the principle behind tithing, that God promises that when we take our limited finances and give a tithe to Him, that He will bless that. And so I think it doesn't have to look the same for everybody. So I don't want to give a prescriptive answer of like, this is how you rest because every situation, life circumstance is going to look different. And my answer to what Sabbathing and resting looked like in grad school was definitely not (laughs) sleeping eight hours a night and taking all of Sunday off. It just, I couldn't do that. But um, what I did was that I would go on regular runs Um, And that would be my time to not think about school, to turn on worship music on my iPod and just go for a run because I needed both a physical exercise and I needed the time to just get my head on Jesus. Um, And I would make sure to at least once a week to just take a couple hours, not look at the clock and just go outside somewhere in nature because that's where I really connect with the Lord and just take my journal and my Bible and just sit just sit for a while. And even if it was just three hours a week and that was all I could get of just 
open time, that was how I could rest. Now, the other principle to all of that is making sure that you have a time every single day where you connect with the Lord, be that 15 minutes, half an hour, an hour. Um, and then just setting aside time once a week. If it can't be a whole day, then just give it a couple of hours. Put everything else aside. No to-do lists, no phones, no TVs. Just turn it all off and just focus on the Lord. And it's amazing how when you are pursuing rest and when you're intentionally setting aside time for God, He will use that. And even if it's just three hours a week of of just intentional resting, um, that can be really, really, really important. And I think that the discipline of doing things regularly is another thing I would say um, to just be able to daily just take five minutes before you go to bed and just like let your heart calm down, focus on the Lord and just say, thank you, Lord, for what you've done today. Um, and just doing things on a regular basis and making that your habit it will it will make you hungry for more to the point that rest will become a higher priority. And sometimes it takes creativity because you have to fit it in between diaper changes or business trips or whatever. Um, but take advantages of those times when you're driving. Take advantages of those nap times when your kids are napping. Yes, I know there's laundry, but your heart and your spiritual health is more important. And it's, it's just that priority setting of like, what am I going to do with the next 15 minutes that I have free? Am I going to sit down and just read a Psalm or am I going to go, I don't know, fiddle around on Facebook. What does that look like to make resting a priority? And that takes some creativity, but it's definitely worth it. I love how you said, yes, there's laundry, but your heart is more important. That's so good. Ruth, this has been just such uh, an encouragement. I, I'm so grateful for you sharing these things with, with all of us. And just as sort of a last question, what, what encouragement can you give to the listener right now who's listening and feeling discouraged or feeling shame or whatever, just as sort of a general, like somebody's listening, maybe they're listening and they're crying because the Lord's speaking to them or um, whatever it is, what sort of general encouragement is sort of a final, like a conclusion to this interview could you give? The thing that just jumps to my mind is that God sees, He sees every last bit of your heart, everything that nobody else can see. And He knows it. And he cares so deeply. He intimately loves every part of you, no matter how broken it is. And he wants you to be whole. And he died so that you can be whole. And that is just absolutely beautiful. Don't be ashamed to reach out. Don't be ashamed to seek counseling, to seek medication. I often will tell my patients, listen, just the fact that you're here asking for help means that you've taken the first biggest step that that requires courage, but it is worth it because God wants you to be whole. He wants you to be healed. That's who he is. He's the healer. And all the rest of this stuff, counseling, medication, whatever, those are just the tools that he uses for that healing. It all comes from him, but he sees, he knows, and he cares. 
Ruth, thank you so much for being on the show. For those of you, by the way, who are listening and you are local and you're like, oh my gosh, I want Ruth. I'm really sorry to tell you that, and I have begged her to stay, but apparently she won't. She's moving to India, you guys. India. I have tried to convince her to stay as have other patients. So I'm really sad to report to you that if you want Ruth, you probably cannot have her. (laughs) Um, Anyway, Ruth, thank you again so much. You are such a gift to all of us. Thank you. Thank you so much, Ashley. It's been a pleasure and a joy. you for listening to the complicated heart podcast if you like this podcast if you found it helpful please take a minute to subscribe rate and leave a review reviews are how people know if they should listen or not so your review matters thank you so much if you want to know more check out the complicated heart podcast.com